It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh, and it is an absolute honor to be talking to former U.S. Attorney Preet Ferrara, the author of a new children's book called Justice Is, which I'm very excited to dive into because this is uh, something that I care a lot about, educating young people to understand how to move about the world. But just as we were sitting down to talk, we got the news that Supreme Court Justice uh, Stephen Breyer is going to retire. So first, I want to say thank you for joining me, even as your world is exploding <laughs> all around you with news. I appreciate you making the time. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I'm, I keep to my commitments, and we've been committed to do this, and maybe it's something we can talk about for a minute. You know, I've, I've been through to. this process a few times before, not just as a citizen and as a commentator, but people forget that in between the time that I was a line prosecutor and the time I became the U.S. attorney, I worked on the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. And right. one of the reasons I did that back in the day was there was an expectation that there would be one or more retirements. This is back in 2005. And in 2005, we had the most static court that we'd had for a long time. There had not been a retirement or a death for 11 years. And there was, there was much anticipation that Justice O'Connor might retire. And sure enough, she did. And Washington and the whole country was all a flutter with figuring out what was going to happen. Uh, Senator Schumer, for whom I worked at the time, was a leading voice on judges and balance on the Supreme Court. And then, of course, people may have forgotten John Roberts on the eve of his confirmation hearing that September to become an associate justice. Uh, that mm -hmm. got changed and moved because Justice Rehnquist, the chief justice, passed away on Labor Day weekend. And then we had the prospect of two Senate confirmation hearings for two vacancies on the Supreme Court in the course of a few months. And you know, I, I know about this from the perspective of being on the Hill and in the chamber and in the hearing room. And given how much is at stake now and the country more divided, and even more attention being paid to the Supreme Court and more allegations and accusations that the Supreme Court has become very politicized, this will be, on one hand, a gigantic deal because people have been worried about what McConnell will do if the Senate goes back to being Republican next year. As everyone knows, very famously, McConnell basically deep-sixed the confirmation of Merrick Garland a few years ago. So it's a contentious issue. Uh, it's a polarizing issue. But at the end of the day, all that the sort of liberals will get with respect to Justice Breyer's retirement is swapping out an older liberal for a younger liberal, which is important because that person will be in the court, presumably for a very, very long time. But we're talking about maintaining a 6-3 court as opposed to you know, advancing the ball in terms of balance. Are, are you hopeful that there could be a selection who, like Justice Sotomayor, is willing to critique the integrity of the court, and so therefore might wind up persuading their colleagues or at least warning their colleagues that heading too far in an anti-democratic or, or right-wing direction could be a negative. Is there a way, I'm guessing I'm asking, to turn this seat into slightly more than simple maintenance of a 6-3 court? Yeah, you know, I think so. Um, but the limitations to that, right? One's mm -hmm. ability to persuade is limited by others' abilities, the other people's ability 
or desire or openness to being persuaded. And I don't know that you know, Sam Alito was persuadable on anything. Um, no, I but I think maybe John Roberts is. is. Yeah, I mean, Roberts, you know, depending on who you ask, <laughs> you know, people think he's an erstwhile, <clears throat> people think he's an erstwhile conservative. He's still quite, quite conservative. He's a little bit more of an institutionalist. Um, so he votes sometimes in ways where liberals like the result, uh, if not the reasoning. But yes, you know, someone who is young and, uh, you know, has some of the spirit and spunk that Sotomayor has may make some difference, but I'm just not sure how much. Is there anything that you can advise us, the lay people who certainly don't have your breadth of experience when it comes to Supreme Court nominations? What should we be watching in the coming hours, days, if we want to read the tea leaves as to what President Biden will do and, and who he might appoint? Well, you know, as I said, when we, <laughs> we were about to start taping, I hadn't done my homework yet, and I would have ordinarily been doing my homework already. My recollection is, that Joe Biden had said on the campaign trail, and he maybe even after that, that he had every intention of making his first Supreme Court, uh, his first Supreme Court appointment, uh, an African American woman. So that he has said that. Yes, he has said that. Right. That's my recollection. Yep. So look for him to keep his promise in that regard. That limits the the number of folks. Um, off the top of my head, I can't remember that entire group, but there's some folks. There's <clears throat> there's a woman who was recently appointed to this uh, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Mm hmm. I would expect her to be on the list. Uh, so, so look for that. Look for the degree to which Biden will care about this appointment, not just for the purposes of securing a liberal seat for a long time on the court, but there's also the politics of the day. And yes. my off the off the top of my head, thinking is, you know, he's not doing well in the polls at the moment. And as much as people might think that the court is separate from politics, that is certainly not true the extent it was before. And the court and politics uh, go together in the minds of any president. That's always been true. And so, you know, I, my, my guess is that he's going to try to want to find somebody who's not going to further uh, alienate independence in a way mm. that they seem to be, whether it's fair or unfair. But what I've seen of his poll numbers, it's not great. And whether he wants to use this nomination in part, uh, you know, to, to have a bounce back a little bit in the polls, or at least to prevent a further slide in the polls is something to watch. Absolutely. I hope that it doesn't turn into an either or between nominating somebody that could galvanize the base and make the voters of color that sent him to office really excited um, and trying to appeal to those pesky independents who occasionally will swing the other way. Like I hope he's able to find either a middle ground that can accomplish both with a single nomination, which would obviously be really difficult, or, or that he doesn't sacrifice the overarching principles of justice, which is how we're going to segue into your children's book, um, for what he perceives as um, you know, bringing back the, the white working class male voters. Is there anything that Biden has said about the court that makes you think that he's going to, to tilt one way or the other? Not really. I mean, he was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee for a number of years, he was the chair, in fact, when Anita Hill testified against Clarence yes. Thomas, and he got some understandable criticism for how he handled that. So he, he has a long experience, his long experience with nominees, both from the Senate perspective and as the vice president to Obama, who had a number of picks. So I think he's going to be, you know, traditional about this. But by the way, the other thing I should say is, um, in a way, in the last couple of minutes of conversation, we've been, we've been assuming that all 50 Democrats will support the nominee. 
And so yes, another reason have. why, another, you know, progressives are not happy with Kirsten Cinema and with Joe Manchin on some of these bills and on voting rights, but they're still going to be in the Senate for this confirmation hearing and query mm-hmm. whether a nominee is not to the liking of Joe Manchin, if that's going to matter and what kinds of consult- consultation there will be. Because, because I do think, and I haven't had time to think deeply about this. Can I caveat this enough? Have I, have I done enough of course. <laughs> hedging uh, on, by analysis? <laughs> but you know, Joe Biden certainly cannot afford to pick someone hastily. And then after that nominee has been presented and introduced to the American public in a, in a confirmation hearing looming, have someone like Joe Manchin say, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I'm going to vote. You really don't want to have this nomination and confirmation in jeopardy. It's even, I think, worse with respect to the Supreme Court in some ways, uh, politically, optically, legally, constitutionally, than it would be for legislation. Yeah, I think so you're absolutely so guess, correct. So the bottom, the bottom line is, <laughs> this is often the case. In fact, it may always be the case. The threading of the needle in the selection of a Supreme Court justice at a fraught moment is really, really hard. It is. It is. All right. And that can be the final word on the speculation as this news literally. Can I say one more thing? I'm I'm glad I'm not. I'm glad I'm not Joe. I'm glad I'm not Joe Biden. It is. uh, Yeah. No, I I wouldn't want to be the president for a number of reasons. But this in particular (laughs) seems to be one of the most weighty ones that uh, that any of them have to deal with. I can guarantee you one more thing. The person will absolutely be 100 percent in favor of a woman's right to choose. Yeah. Yeah. And that is um, that is a commitment that we will absolutely need in this particular moment. So, uh, but again, it doesn't change the makeup of the six three court. So, um, here we are uh, in a totally new landscape, but also very much exactly where we were just a few minutes ago before this news broke. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it literally broke three minutes before we started taping. Yes, one hundred percent. That is accurate. <laughs> Let's talk about your children's book, because that's why you're here today. And and I care deeply about it. It is called Justice Is. And I wanted to start with sort of the most basic question, which how how do you define justice? Well, that's a complicated question. It can take (laughs) up entire careers like it has mine and not just entire careers of lawyers, but entire careers of justices and jurists, entire careers of moral philosophers. Um, It's a really hard question. What, What I think about justice is that it is not a destination, uh, it's a process. The, the book I wrote for grownups three years ago is called Doing Justice, and I chose that title for that book because it's something that you do. It's not something that just exists. And generally speaking, people will, will review an outcome of a process uh, as fair if they think that the process is fair-minded and the people who are responsible for the process are also fair-minded. And you can, have, you can have good rules and bad people that will produce injustice. You can have uh, bad rules and good people, and that can produce injustice. And so you need both of those things. And, and one of the things I was trying to do in the book, uh, because it's a complicated topic that, you know, going back to before the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, a question that people contemplate uh, and argue about and debate uh, for millennia is, is to introduce people to, to heroic figures from history, both in America and outside America, both from modern times and from uh, you know, times earlier in American history and world history, introduce them to those figures uh, that their parents can explain more about them and 
they can have role models, which I think is possible at a very young age, as I've been saying, since I've been talking about the book. My dad used to tell me stories about Mahatma Gandhi. I'm an Indian immigrant. We were born in, I was born in India. My parents were too, before we emigrated to the United States. And I remember being pretty young and hearing stories about how India got its independence. By the way, I believe today is Indian Independence Day, January 26th. And, oh, wow. uh, you know, I didn't understand that much then, but it piqued my curiosity. And I think part of the, the goal of the book is to pique young people's curiosity about these figures that they read about and that they hear about and that their parents can tell them more about. That's what I was struck by looking at this book. It's a book with very simple language. It's, it's not didactic. The, the history is told largely through the illustrations. And so I was, I was wondering where, if that was part of your intent in writing this book was to spark conversations between kids and their parents, that, that they ask more about the images in the book and learn a little bit about the struggles in our own history through those ensuing conversations with their parents who presumably, if they're buying them this book, they would like to have those conversations with them. That sort of dovetails with the conversation that we're having nationally over curricula right now. Yeah. So how important is it for kids to learn our own history? Extremely important. You know, I, I don't understand how you can learn or think about or be educated about justice if you have no concept about what injustice is. And so the book in, in, in a very, I think, um, appropriate and sensitive way doesn't just have an illustration of Mandela doesn't just have an illustration of Lincoln or Ida B. Wells. You know, it also has a depiction of slavery uh, and a depiction of the Japanese internments, because I think mm -hmm. that needs to be talked about also. And I think we underestimate the ability of, of kids to understand that there is bad in the world too. It has to be done with sensitivity and carefully, uh, and parents can choose to, to talk about it more or less or wait till later, but you can't talk about justice without talking about injustice. Right. Are you at all concerned that this is the kind of book that Republicans are seeking to ban at local legislative and school board levels? You know, <laughs> this book has been in progress for a couple of years. That's how these things go. Um, and so, you know, the, the current craze for book banning, which I find abhorrent and ridiculous and anti-American and unpatriotic, and also in, in the long term self-defeating, uh, that was not present when the book was conceived and the text was written. Um, in the last few days, people have mentioned that. Uh, I think that would be unfortunate mm. and and silly, but you know, we'll, we'll see. If it gets banned in one state, maybe it'll improve sales in a different state. You know that it does occasionally happen. I was thinking about that while I was reading this and looking at it with the with that lens. I also think that it's it's the kind of book that it, it feels like a book that is read at home, if that makes sense. It doesn't feel like a school book. It feels like a book that make that would just drive all of the questions and all of the conversations within the house. So it feels like it's the kind of learning tool that you could use, especially if you were in a school district where you knew that um, teaching civil rights and civil rights movements globally was going to be frowned um, on or, you know, might get you sued or whatever yeah. else they come up with in well, the did, next few months. Just to go back to the example I was giving earlier about my dad talking about the people who were courageous in the movement for Indian independence back uh, in the time of World War II. He also told me and my brother about what colonialism was like and the bad yeah. things that happened and some of the folks that wanted to go along with 
you know, the, the kingdom of Great Britain, it's impossible to talk about the good thing. How do you talk about Mandela? Right. How do you talk about how, why Mandela was great and why his movement in South Africa was great without explaining why it was needed <laughs> and what apartheid right. was? You, you can't, how can you talk about Lincoln, right, who's also depicted in the book with Frederick Douglass, who we met with a few times um, because they lived at the same time? How can you talk about Lincoln as a hero without talking about slavery as a disgrace? I just don't see how that follows. I, I mean, I think their end game is to to stop talking about the heroes altogether. It, yeah. it feels like it's not it's not just that we don't want to talk about Jim Crow and we don't want to talk about what inspired the civil rights movement. We also don't want to talk about the heroes of the civil rights movement. Um, I, I find, I mean, and, and you've probably done a lot more research, especially as you're writing a book for children. I find that children sort of latch on to heroes in stories. If we if we tell them a story of a great injustice and there's a hero in the story, kids don't they tend to see themselves is in in the hero role doesn't that help them figure out how to position themselves within an yeah. adult world where things are bad and they do recognize that they are bad yeah no 100 look what is a thing that children consume a lot of and i did as a kid superhero comic books yeah and super and superhero stories and superhero cartoons and superhero movies but the superheroes are not just sort of like prancing around being like i'm a superhero <laughs> They're fighting evil, right? It's you know, it's very they're punching Nazis, literally. Yeah, and and they're and they're they're fighting for something good because there's a force of something bad, and you know, in, in a way, this book I hadn't thought about it until, you know, we just use this analogy, but you know, this is an illustrated book. It's not a comic book, but it's an illustrated book, showing people who are really superheroes, but who actually lived, and actually yeah. did these things. And if we're going to learn about Superman. Uh, and Batman and Spider-Man, why don't we learn about John Lewis? Why don't we learn right. about Malala Yousafzai? I mean, that's an example that, uh, you know, of a person who, who wasn't old, who was a child herself, when all she was trying to do was fight for the right of girls to get an education in her part of the world. And I can imagine, you know, a seven-year-old girl uh, learning about her for the first time and wondering what that must have been like and thinking, that's an important thing to have the courage of your convictions um, and to be fearless, even when you have fear. What's a better lesson than that? It's difficult to think of one, um, especially when we think of, of what, we, what we actually want to teach kids, the critical thinking skills and the evolution of being an empathetic adult. Um, it is very difficult to think of a, a better lesson than that one. So there is a conversation that happens in uh, in progressive circles, especially when we're talking about anti-racist work, that there is no justice um, once someone's life has been taken in a way that was not fair or right. There can only be accountability. Yeah. And I'm wondering from your perspective, do you think that justice can happen once damage is done? Depends on what you mean by justice, which is why your initial question is an impossible one to answer, uh, perhaps mm. even in a lifetime, right? And people use that phrase sometimes in a facile way. And I've become more sensitive to how I use it uh, in light of thinking about what it means to the families of somebody who died, uh, particularly if it was uh, at the hands of a racist, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, so Ahmaud Arbery was, uh, you know, a, a black man unarmed running down the street in Georgia, killed by three white men, and those people were convicted. And you heard after that conviction, some people said that's justice for Ahmaud Arbery. And 
and I tried not to use that phrase, and I'm sure I've used that kind of phrase before, there was legal justice, right, which legal system provides often too often doesn't provide it. But to say there was justice in, in a very important and meaningful sense, you can't say that. Because if, you, if, if there was real justice, Ahmaud Arbery wouldn't have been killed for running while black. And right. Ahmaud Arbery, uh, his killers would have been uh, arrested sooner than they were. And it wouldn't have required videotape. And it wouldn't have required multiple district attorneys to have to recuse themselves, or uh, in one case, a district attorney for engaging in shenanigans with respect to bringing the case or not has uh, herself been indicted. So yeah, ultimately there was okay. accountability, but when you look at the entire picture, it's hard to say that there was justice. What do you think justice would look like when we look at January 6th? <laughs> so, you know, in, I think in the same way, that if there was justice and fairness in the country, you wouldn't have had people with impunity being able to do what they did. You wouldn't have had a president inciting them to do what they did. Uh, but again, talking about the other phrase, it's related to justice. It's not the whole, it's not coextensive with justice. It does not occupy the entire space of justice, but accountability is something very important. And right now you're seeing accountability for, I don't know what the latest count is, but 700 something people. Uh, in charges ranging from trespass to now we have 11 people charged with uh, seditious conspiracy, which is a very serious charge. Mm -hmm. And the question of accountability remains open because as you know, and as everyone has been discussing, what about some of the enablers? What about people around the White House? What about people who are planning at the, at the Willard Hotel? What about the former president himself? And that remains to be seen. Um, you know, part of justice is, uh, is truth and knowledge about what happened. And I think the 1-6 committee is doing a lot of that. But the 1-6 committee doesn't really have jurisdiction or the ability to bring accountability, right? So they handle one aspect of it. We have a Fulton County DA who has impaneled a special grand jury to look at some of the shenanigans in Georgia. We'll see if that produces accountability. But the question you ask about what justice means with respect to 1-6 is very much an open question. I want to say thank you for taking the time, especially on what is about to be a pretty zany day for you. The book is Justice Is. If you have kids or people who love them in your life, um, I highly recommend it. It's something you have to have on your shelves. Uh, Preet Bharara, thank you so I, much for joining us. Can I just say one today. more thing that's very important? Please. I'm not making a penny off this book. All of my income from the book, I'm donating to a great organization in New York uh, called the New York Legal Assistance Group. So I just wanted people to know that as well. Oh, that's absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much for that addition. Great, thanks so much. Please take care with the rest of your day. Um, I wish you the best of luck with the uh, illusion. You must Thank have by now. <laughs> Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening. 